0: calm and carry on reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. (laughs) Today we are going to be reading two chapters, chapter 25 and chapter 26, starting with chapter 25. Johnny was one for taking notions. He'd take a notion that life was too much for him and start drinking heavier to forget it. Francie got to know when he was drinking more than usual. He walked straighter coming home. He walked carefully and slightly sideways. When he was drunk, he was a quiet man. He didn't brawl, he didn't sing, he didn't grow sentimental. He grew thoughtful. People who didn't know him thought that he was drunk when he was sober Because sober, he was full of song and excitement. When he was drunk, strangers looked on him as a quiet, thoughtful man who minded his own business. Francie dreaded the drinking periods. Not on moral grounds, but because Papa wasn't a man she knew then. He wouldn't talk to her, or to anybody. He looked at her with the eyes of a stranger. When Mama spoke to him, he turned his head away from her. When he got over a drinking time, he'd take a notion that he had to be a better father to his children. He felt that he had to teach them things. He'd stop drinking for a while, take a notion to work hard, and devote all of his spare time to Francie and Neely. He had the same idea that Katie's mother, Mary Romilly, had about education. He wanted to teach his children all that he knew so that at 14 or 15, they would know as much as he knew at 30. He figured they could go on from there picking up their own knowledge and, according to his calculations, when they reached 30, they would be twice as smart as he had been at 30. He felt that they needed lessons in, for what passed in his mind, geography, civics, and sociology. So he took them over to Bushwick Avenue. Bushwick Avenue was the high-toned boulevard of old Brooklyn. It was a wide tree-shaded avenue and the houses were rich and impressively built of large granite blocks with large stone stoops. Here lived the big-time politicians, The moneyed brewery families, the well-to-do immigrants who had been able to come over first class instead of steerage. They had taken their money, their statuary, and their gloomy oil paintings and come to America and settled in Brooklyn. Automobiles were coming into use, but most of these families still clung to their handsome horses and magnificent carriages. Papa pointed out and described the various equipages Equipages. to Francie. She watched in awe as they rolled by. There were small, liqueur dainty ones lined with tufted white satin and large, fringed umbrella that was used by fine and delicate ladies. There were adorable wicker ones with a bench along each side on which lucky children sat while they were pulled along by a Shetland pony. She stared at the capable-looking governesses who accompanied these children, women from another world in capes and starch-stringed bonnets who sat sideways on the seat to drive the pony. Francie saw practical black two-seaters drawn by a single high-stepping horse controlled by dandified young men in kid gloves with edges turned back to look like inverted cuffs. She saw family vehicles drawn by dependable-looking teams. These coaches did not impress Fancy very much because every undertaker in Williamsburg had a string of them. Fancy liked the handsome cabs best how magic they were with only two wheels and that funny door that closed by itself when a passenger sat back in the seat. Francie thought, in her innocence, that the doors were meant to protect the passenger from from flying horse manure. If I were a man, thought Francie, that's the job I'd like to have, driving one of them Oh, to sit high in the back with a brave whip in a socket close to hand. Oh, to wear such a great coat with large buttons and a velvet collar and a squashed-down high hat with a ribbon cockade in the band. Oh, to have such an expensive-looking blanket folded over your knees. Francie imagined the driver's... Francie imitated the driver's cry under her breath. Carriage, sir Carriage Anybody, said Johnny, carried away by his personal dream of democracy, can ride in one of those handsome cabs provided he qualified, they got the money. So you can see what a free country we got here. What's free about it if you have to pay? asked Francie. It's free in this way. If you have the money, you're allowed to ride in them, no matter who you are. In the old countries, certain people aren't free to ride in them, even if they have the money. Wouldn't it be more of a free country, persisted Francie, if we could ride in them for free? No. Why? Because that would be socialism, concluded Johnny triumphantly, and we don't want that over here. Why? Because we got democracy, and that's the best thing there is," clinched Johnny. There were rumors that New York City's next mayor would come from Bushwick Avenue, Brooklyn. The idea stirred Johnny. Look up and down this block, Francie, and show me where our future mayor lives. Francie looked, then had to hang her head and say, I don't know, Papa. "'There!' announced Johnny, as though he was blowing a trumpet fanfare. "'Someday that house over there will be two lamp-posts at the bottom of a stoop, "'and no matter where you roam in this great city,' he orated, "'and you come across a house with two lamp-posts, "'you'll know that the mayor of the greatest city in the world lives there.'" "'What will he need two lamp-posts for?' Francie wanted to know. "'Because this is America, and in a country where such things are,' "'concluded John Lee, vaguely but very patriotically. "'You know that the government is by the people, for the people, of the people, "'and shall not perish from the face of the earth the way it does in the old countries.' "'He began to sing under his breath. "'Soon he was carried away by his feeling and started to sing louder.' Francie joined in, Johnny sang, You're a grand old flag, you're a high-flying flag and forever in peace may you wave. People stared at Johnny curiously, and one kind lady threw him a penny. Francie had another memory about Bushwick Avenue. It was tied up with the scent of roses. There were roses roses bushwick avenue streets emptied of traffic crowds on the sidewalk the police holding them back always the scent of roses then came the cavalcade mounted policemen and a large open motor car in which was seated a genial kindly looking man with a wreath of roses around his neck some people were weeping with joy as they looked at him Fancy clung to Papa's hand. She heard people around her talking. Just think, he was a Brooklyn boy too. Was, you dope. He still lives in Brooklyn. Yeah? Yeah. And he lives right here on Bushwick Avenue. Look at him. Look at him, a woman cried out. He did such a great thing and he's still an ordinary man like my husband. Only better looking. "'It must have been cold up there,' said a boy. "'It wonders me he didn't freeze his whatses off,' said a body boy.'" A cadaverous-looking man tapped Johnny on the shoulder. "'Mac,' he inquired, "'do you actually believe there's a pole up there sticking out on top of the world?' "'Sure,' answered Johnny. "'Didn't he go up there and turned around?' and hang an American flag on it. Just then a small boy hollered out, Here he comes! Ah! Francie was thrilled by the sound of admiration that swayed the crowd when the car came past where they were standing. Carried away by the excitement, she yelled out shrilly, Hooray for Dr. Cook! Hooray for Brooklyn! Chapter 26 Most children brought up in Brooklyn before the First World War remember Thanksgiving Day there with a peculiar tenderness. There was the day, it was the day, children went around ragamuffin or slamming gates, wearing costumes topped off by a penny mask. Francie chose her mask with great care she bought a yellow chinaman one with sleazy rope mandarin mustache neely bought a chalk white death head with grinning black teeth papa came through on the last at the last minute with a penny tin horn for each red for francie green for neely what a time francie had getting neely into his costume He wore one of Mama's discarded dresses, hacked off ankle length in the front to enable him to walk. The uncut back made a dirty, dragging chain. He stuffed wadded newspapers in the front to make an enormous bust. His broken out, brass tipped shoes stuck out in front of the dress. Lest he freeze, he wore. Excuse me a ragged sweater over the ensemble. With this costume, he wore the death mask and one of Papa's discarded derbies cocked on his head, only it was too big and wouldn't cock and rested on his ears. Francie wore one of Mama's yellow waists, a bright blue skirt, and a red sash. She held the Chinaman mask on by a red bandana over her head and tied under her chin. Mama made her wear a Zitful cap, Katie's own name for a wool stocking cap, over her headgear because it was a cold day. Francie put two walnuts for decoys in her last year's Easter basket, and the children set out. The street was jammed with masked and costumed children, making a deafening din with their penny-tin horns. Some kids were too poor to buy a penny mask. They had blackened their faces with burnt cork. Other children had more prosperous parents, or... Other children with more prosperous parents had store costumes, sleazy Indian suits, cowboy suits, and cheesecloth Dutch maiden dresses. A few indifferent ones simply draped a dirty sheet over themselves and called it a costume. Francie got pushed in with a compact group of children and went the rounds with them. Some storekeepers locked their doors against them, but most of them had something for the children. The candy store man had hoarded all broken bits of candy for weeks and now passed it out in little bags for all who came begging. He had to do this because he lived on the pennies of the youngsters and he didn't want to be boycotted. The bakery stores obligated by baking up patches of soft doughy cookies which they gave away. Children were the marketers of the neighborhood, and they would only patronize those stores that treated them well. The bakery people were aware of this. The green grocer obliged, with decaying bananas and half-rotted apples. Some stores, with nothing to gain from the children, neither locked them out nor gave them anything save a profane lecture on the evils of begging. These people were rewarded by terrific and repeated bangings of the front door by the children. Hence the term, slamming gates. By noon, it was all over. Francie was tired of her unwieldy costume. Her mask had crumpled. It was made of cheap gauze, heavily starched and dried in shape over a mold. A boy had taken her tin horn and broken it in two across his knee she met neely coming along with a bloody nose he had been in a fight with another boy who wanted to take his basket neely wouldn't say who won but he had the other boy's basket besides his own they went home to a good thanksgiving dinner of pot roast and homemade noodles and spent the day listening to papa reminisce how he had gone around thanksgiving day as a boy It was at a Thanksgiving time that Francie told her first organized lie, was found out, and determined to become a writer. The day before Thanksgiving, there were exercises in Francie's room. Each of four chosen girls recited a Thanksgiving poem and held in her hand a symbol of the day. One held an ear of dried-up corn, another a turkey's foot, meant to stand for the whole turkey. A third girl held a basket of apples, and the fourth held a five-cent pumpkin pie, which was the size of a small saucer. After the exercises, the turkey foot and corn were thrown into the wastebasket. Teacher set aside the apples to take home. She asked if anyone wanted the little pumpkin pie. Thirty mouths watered, thirty hands inched to go up into the air, but no one moved. Some were poor, many were hungry, and all were too proud to accept charitable food. When no one responded, teacher ordered the pie thrown away. Francie couldn't stand it. That beautiful pie thrown away, and she had never tasted pumpkin pie. To her, it was the food of covered wagon people, of Indian fighters. She was dying to taste it. In a flash, she invented a lie, and up went her hand. "'I'm glad someone wants it,' said teacher. "'I don't want it for myself,' lied Francie proudly. "'I know a very poor family I'd like to give it to.' "'Good,' said teacher. "'That's the real Thanksgiving spirit.' Francie ate the pie while walking home that afternoon. Whether it was her conscience or the unfamiliar flavor— She didn't enjoy the pie. It tasted like soap. The Monday following, teacher saw her in the hall before class and asked her how the poor family had enjoyed the pie. They liked it a whole lot, Francie told her. Then, when she saw teacher there looking so interested, she embellished the story. This family has two little girls with golden curls and big blue eyes. And prompted teacher and and they're twins how interesting Francie was inspired one of them has the name Pamela and the other Camilla these were names that Francie had once chosen for her non-existent dolls and they are very very poor suggested teacher oh very poor They didn't have anything to eat for three days and just would have died, the doctor said, if I didn't bring them that pie. That was such a tiny pie, commented teacher gently, to save two lives. Francie knew then that she had gone too far. She hated whatever the thing was inside her that made her invent such whoppers. Teacher bent down and put her arms around Francie. Francie saw that there were tears in her eyes. Francie went to pieces and remorse rose in her like bitter flood waters. That's all a big lie, she confessed. I ate the pie myself. I know you did. "'Don't send a letter home,' begged Francie, thinking of the address she didn't own. "'I'll stay after school every day for—' "'I'll not punish you for having an imagination.'" Gently, teacher explained the difference between a lie and a story. A lie was something you told because you were mean or a coward. A story was something you made up out of something that might have happened— Only you didn't tell it like it was, you told it like you thought it should have been. As teacher talked, a great trouble left Francie. Lately she had been given to exaggerating things. She did not report things truthfully, but gave them color, excitement, and dramatic twists. Katie was annoyed at this tendency and kept warning Francie to tell the plain truth and to stop romancing, but Francie just couldn't tell the plain undecorated truth. She had to put something to it. Although Katie had the same flair for coloring an incident and Johnny himself lived in a half-dream world, yet they tried to squelch these things in their child. Maybe they had a good reason. Maybe they knew their own gift of imagination colored too rosily the poverty and brutality of their lives and made them able to endure it. Perhaps Katie thought that if they did not have this faculty, they would be clearer minded, see things as they really were, and seeing them, loathe them, and somehow find a way to make them better. Francie always remembered what the kind teacher told her. You know Francie, a lot of people would think that these stories that you're making up all the time were terrible lies because they are not the truth as people see the truth. In the future, when something comes up, you tell exactly how it happened, but write down for yourself the way you think it should have happened. Tell the truth and write the story. Then you won't get mixed up. It was the best advice Francie ever got. Truth and fancy were so mixed up in her mind, as they are in the mind of every lonely child, that she didn't know which was which. But teacher made these two things clear to her. From that time on, she wrote little stories about things she saw and felt and did. In time, she got so that she was able to speak the truth, but with a slight and instinctive coloring of the facts. Francie was 10 years old when she first found an outlet in writing. What she wrote was of little consequence. What was important? was that the attempt to write stories kept her straight on the dividing line between truth and fiction. If she had not found this outlet in writing, she might have grown up to be a tremendous liar.